That video is a great perspective on the church and how we should view our lives in the context of being members of it today, especially, I think, given what the church has become for so many in modern times. And so we're going to be talking about the church this morning. And this is going to be part one of a, of a three-part sermon. This sermon is actually the last sermon in this series that we've been working through. Dave will be teaching next week, so we'll pause this sermon series for a week. Then we'll pick it up and have two more messages in this three-part sermon to finish out this series. So this morning we'll be talking about the church with a specific focus on unity within the church. And as we continue our sermon series, then Running on Empty, uh, where for the past several weeks we've been discussing some of the common aspects of life that have the potential to either energize us and excite us and invigorate us each day or exhaust us and run us down and drain us of our joy and energy. And so if you've been here, you know that we've talked already about relationships for a couple of weeks, and then we talked about work, our vocation, and then we talked about priorities last week. Uh, all those messages, by the way, are on our website if you'd like to go back and listen to any uh, that you might have missed. And of course, these are all facets of living that can either fill us up or completely drain us, depending on how we view and interact with each of those areas of life. And to be honest, church is no different in that respect. Our experience as a part of the church has the potential to be profoundly beneficial, life-giving, energizing, refreshing in our lives. Or the truth is church can be very stressful and disappointing and frustrating and draining. And that realization, to be honest, really hit me for the first time several years ago. I was talking to a friend of mine. He was a worship leader in a large church. And eventually he decided to go to seminary, felt called into the pastorate, and uh, he ended up pastoring his own church, becoming the pastor of a new church. And I was talking with him one day, and we'd had lots of conversations as we would get together and sort of commiserate on our uh, woes as church staff, um, how stressful it was and how disappointed we were and how difficult it was to do what we did in church and that sort of a thing. And I was talking to him one day right after he had entered this new pastorate. And I said, hey man, tell me and be honest, <clears throat> what's it like? How do you feel now that you're pastoring your own church? And I expected him to say something to the effect of, man, I, I went from the frying pan to the fire. Because now he's really in it, right? He's the pastor of a church. And instead what he said to me was, Rob, I would die for my church. And I remember being really surprised by that statement. I said, really? And he said, yeah. In fact, I can't put into words how much I love this church and these people and what I would do for them. And he went on and on just gushing about this church. And he still feels that way today. That was many years ago. Well, the truth is my story parallels his in many ways. And, and you know the story. I was a worship leader at a large church and left. And we went in back to school and then on to seminary. And now here we are. And the truth is today I can say all of those same things about this church about you, that he said to me. And so I've spent a lot of time over the last two or three years reflecting on that a bit and what made the difference. And I can tell you that it wasn't that the local church had been doing something wrong to me all those years, although I can certainly identify areas in each of those churches that could stand some improvement because no church is perfect, of course, including this one. But the change... The reason for the change in my heart and my attitude and my outlook and, and, and even what I was getting from the church was due to a change in me. 
not in the church. And, and here's a hint. Uh, in fact, I'll just go ahead and give away right here in the beginning of the message the big secret to experiencing church in a whole new way. The, the key to church becoming a profoundly positive force for good in your life as opposed to something that frustrates and drains you every week is this. I finally made a decision to give my life to serving God and His people before I serve myself. In other words, before I even allowed myself to think about what I might get out of church each week and even throughout the week, I now think about how I can better and more effectively give myself to the church, to you and to God first. And that alone has completely, it has completely revolutionized my church experience. In fact, I can tell you from firsthand experience, if the main reason that you come to church is to have your personal needs met, you will often be frustrated. Because the church is not designed or equipped to provide for every single need in your life. Jesus is. And although he, he often does bring that provision through the church, probably most often, we still have to keep in perspective that Christ alone is our supply. It's not the church or its programs or its leadership that is primarily responsible to meet our every need. Otherwise, uh, we become very disillusioned with the church. Okay, Church isn't just about what we receive. That's a part of it. That is a part of it, but that's only one part of it. It's also about the fruit that is produced in the lives of other people by what we give. It's about putting Christ first and offering ourselves sacrificially in service to Him and to others in everything that we say and do, even when that means not getting what we want first. The Apostle Paul said a lot about this. In Philippians 2.3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then in Romans 12, 10, he writes, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. I'll just tell you that by far the majority of the people, not, not all, but the majority of the people who have left churches that I've been affiliated with over the years where I was uh, privy to the situation, the majority of those left out of frustration because they were not getting what they wanted out of the church. Now, there are people who leave church for the right reasons and go to other churches. I worked at five different churches as God was calling me and moving me into different situations. So it's per understand that's perfectly fine if that's what he's calling you to do. But a lot of people leave churches simply out of frustration. It's a knee-jerk reaction because they're not getting what they want out of their church. And I believe with my whole heart that if many of those folks had in humility counted themselves more significant, or counted others more significant than themselves first, as the scripture says, and focused on what they could give before ever considering what they might get from church that they, they probably wouldn't have left. In fact, I believe most of them would probably be thriving in those churches today. Okay, our focus in the life of the church is to be on Christ and on others, not on ourselves. And in that, we do receive, and it's a beautiful thing, we, we receive tremendous personal benefit and blessings when we give. But if the fulfillment that I seek in my church experience is solely based on what I receive, then I will most certainly become frustrated eventually and probably burned out because the church will never be able to give enough to satisfy those who are only looking at what they can get out of the body of Christ. So we tend to think of church as how it affects us as individuals. And that's not wrong, but it's also not complete. 
It's not a complete picture of how church was primarily designed to function, okay? There, there are descriptions of individuals and individual roles within the church in the New Testament. Certainly there are. But the majority of the, the instruction and the assignment and the praise and the rebuke and the, the purpose in the New Testament that is given to the church is given to the church as a whole, as a family, as a community of faith, both locally and universally. And so that perspective really should be at the forefront of our thinking when we think about church. This is a family of faith. It's a community of believers. And we exist not as a random collection of individuals, but a sovereignly designed body that can only function properly when each part is doing the job that it was designed for. So, so think of it like this. If, if your feet are constantly working against your legs, you'd probably have a problem, right? You wouldn't be able to walk or run very effectively. If, if your eyes were working against your ears, you wouldn't be able to effectively perceive your surroundings much at all. If your hands are working against your arms, you wouldn't be able to effectively build anything, would you? Each part of the body is designed to work together with the other parts so that the entire body, when functioning properly, can accomplish amazing feats. And the more that each part is functioning at its best to the benefit of the other parts, the more the body can accomplish as a whole. This is how it's supposed to work. And so when that happens, the entire body reaps the benefits as a body, as a whole. It becomes stronger and it becomes more effective. This is God's design for the church. In fact, if we were able to see church the way that God sees the church, we probably wouldn't be nearly as casual about our involvement in it. Those early believers understood this quite well as their lives completely revolved around being a part of the church because they understood what was at stake. Uh, Tony Morita says, if you have a high view of Christ, you should have a high view of the church. And then he goes on to say, there, there's more going on with the church than meets the eye. If you're a part of the church, then you're a part of a cosmic sermon that is being preached to spiritual rulers and authorities. So consider how the church is a witness of the glory of Christ we make known the multifaceted wisdom of God. His grace and glory are displayed in a diverse people, a many-colored fellowship, a multicultural and multi-ethnic fellowship who have been called, redeemed, forgiven, made alive, and united in Christ. Okay? He takes that perspective right out of Ephesians chapter 3. If you read the chapter where Paul expresses this same high view of the church uh, to the church in Ephesus, Paul writes... Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given by, uh, to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, his manifold wisdom, uh, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians 3, 7 through 10. So through the church, God's manifold wisdom is made known. And then Paul says in the same chapter later on, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So through the church, along with Jesus Christ, right alongside Jesus Christ, God is glorified. 
This is heady stuff. It, if, you, if you read it and meditate on what he's saying, the church is the bride of Christ and God's primary means through which Jesus Christ is expressed to the world. And yet much of modern Christianity has reduced the church to a weekly gathering of believers where we hope to be fed something of value that will help us make it through the next week. But church is so much more than that. It was, it was meant to be more than that. Not only for the sake of a lost and dying world, yes, but for the sake of all of us who are already a part of it as well. And so because the body was designed to work together, the effectiveness, the ability of the church to function as it was intended to, rests on the individual parts. Of course, by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, as we fulfill the purpose that we were designed by God to fill. So we must serve the body in the role that we were created for in order for the body and those individual members of it to thrive. And so it stands to reason that when one member of the body decides to act up, to get out of line and not function as he or she was designed to, not only does that member suffer, but the whole body suffers as well. In fact, I'm just getting over a pulled muscle in my back. It is extremely frustrating to me that one little stupid muscle in the middle of my back, when it decides not to do what it's supposed to do, can make my entire body miserable and ineffective. I could hardly move around for a couple of days because one little part of my body decided to revolt and not do what it was designed to do. And so it is with the church. The role that, that it plays in your life, the effect that it has on your life, whether it is building you up or stressing you out has everything to do with whether or not the individual parts each recognize their role and whether or not they're functioning in that role that they were designed for to the benefit of the rest of the body. Uh, each one of us, each one of us has to do our part, okay? So today we're going, to, we're going to work our way through in the few minutes we have left to the first 16 verses about the first half of chapter 4 of Ephesians in our remaining time where Paul outlines some characteristics of the church as a body, as how, as how we're to function within that body. Because I think if we can understand what the church is supposed to look like and how we fit into it, then maybe we'll be able to experience church in a whole new way, in a refreshing and effective and challenging and purposeful way like never before. Okay, so let's turn to the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bible or your smartphone, and we'll have it on the screen as well. And we're going to read through the first half, and we'll start right at verse 1, okay? It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So, so Paul refers to himself as a prisoner for the Lord. And of course, we know that isn't some kind of dramatic metaphor. He was actually in prison in Rome in AD 62. If you'll remember back in uh, Acts 28 when we were working through the book of Acts, this is where he was when he penned these words to the church in Ephesus. And he was in prison, of course, because of his preaching of and testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ working in his own life and in the lives of others, which not only underscores the seriousness of choosing to follow Christ, but it also speaks to the credibility of Paul's testimony and instruction that he's giving to the church. As he's writing to them as one who has literally given up everything, his entire life, for the sake of the gospel. And so with that in mind, the very first thing that he does here in chapter 4, after stating his position, is to remind the church members of their position in the body of Christ. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
In other words, remember who you are and what your purpose is, and then walk in that. And the word walk here in the, in the ancient Greek language that this was written in is the word peripateo. It refers to how a person conducts their entire life. And so when you keep that in mind, this is being written to the church in the context of the church. It's not just an instruction for how they live on Sundays. This is how they are to conduct their lives every single day as members of the body of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We'll come back to that in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So just as our bodies each have a spirit, one spirit that gives us life, so too Christ's body, the church, has one spirit that gives it life. And of course, we know that's the Holy Spirit. Therefore, there is unity in the church, in the body of Christ, in the sense that we all share the same spirit because we're all a part of the same body. And as members of the body of Christ, we've each been given specific gifts. And those gifts are there for us to be used in service to the rest of the body. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. We'll come back to that as well. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint by which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's brilliant. This is one of those passages of Scripture that is not only descriptive, but it's also prescriptive. So it prescribes to us the steps we must take for the church to function as it should. Paul says, each of you should do the job that you were created and called to do as members of the body of Christ in order to build each other up in love. But for what ultimate purpose? And that's the descriptive part of the passage, and it leads to our first point in our outline. Paul explains very clearly here that the church should be characterized by unity. Okay? And honestly, the gravity, the magnitude of importance of this point that Paul is making to the church cannot be overstated. If we don't have unity in the church, we have nothing. And Paul knew that. So he says, first of all, there must be unity in the spirit. He talks about that in verse 3 within the church. He explains then how that is achieved in the verses preceding it, verses 1 and 2. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, conduct yourselves in a way that is aligned with the calling of God that is in your life. And then he says, do it with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. 
Okay, look, we, we can have all of the talent and all of the experience and all of the skill and knowledge in the world. But if we don't conduct ourselves with humility and gentleness and patience and love within the church, then there will never be unity in the spirit within the church. This, this teaching by Paul, by the way, wasn't obvious. Uh, the pagan society in Ephesus in the first century placed a premium on pride and on elevating oneself, much like our society does today. And interestingly, uh, the ancient Greek word here for humility that Paul uses is almost never found anywhere else in Greek literature from that time period. Uh, and when it is, in fact, it carries a very negative connotation. And yet these first century Christians not only became known for their humility, but they were commonly ridiculed for it. The church in Paul's day was countercultural, which certainly got them noticed. And yet Paul says, regardless of what the world around you thinks, this is how you must conduct your lives if there's to be unity in the church. And I'm telling you, this is as relevant for us today as it was for the church in Ephesus in Paul's day. If you have an issue with someone else in the church, you can be as right as Jesus himself and the other person can be as wrong as the worst sinner on the planet. And if you don't have humility and gentleness and patience and love when dealing with that other person, you don't have anything. You'll never experience unity in the spirit. In fact, the significance of loving each other in this manner is so powerful that Peter said love covers a multitude of sins. That's amazing. 1 Peter 4.8. Paul said, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. 1 Corinthians 13.2. In fact, Jesus himself said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and a great and first commandment. And a second like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, he said, depend all of the law and prophets. All of it. Matthew twenty-two thirty-six through 40. Notice that none of them qualified their statements about love here with a caveat about the other person's behavior first. Right? Jesus didn't say, love your neighbor. You, you know, the one that you like. That one that compliments you. The one that's always kind to you. The one that... The one that acts the way that you think he should. No. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And then there's a period. He stops. We're not afforded the luxury as Christians of loving only those people that we like. We're commanded to love everyone, which means we treat people with humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Even when we don't feel like it. And even when we're right and they're dead wrong whether they treat us the way we want them to or not. Either way, we are commanded to love, period. One of the, one of the great characteristics of this church, of Upcountry Church, in my estimation, has been our genuineness and our genuine love for one another. That's what fosters unity in the spirit. And I believe that's one really, really important reason that we've been growing as a church. Because I think people outside of the church are desperately seeking for a place, a community, a family where they can be loved even when they're not right about everything. Okay? And I just want to tell you as we grow 
it's going to become increasingly difficult to maintain that sense of family and community and love because with more people comes more personalities and more diversity and background and upbringing and experience and temperament and on and on. I'm telling you that if our love only extends as far as how agreeable we believe that others are toward us, we will very quickly lose the unity that has so far characterized this church from its inception. And once unity disappears, the very next thing to go is our testimony, our witness. Uh, Jim Daly says of the church, we are no longer effective at persuasion because we lack humility. Some in the faith community are losing legitimacy among younger people because many Christians only speak the truth and fail to do the truth. Jesus, Jesus said this to his followers. He said, by this... All people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. It, it's not enough to simply talk about the love of Christ. We actually have to live it out inside and outside of the church. If we don't have love for each other, then we don't have unity. And if we don't have unity, then we don't have a testimony. You've heard me say it before. Our testimony is at the mercy of our unity. That is a fact. We simply cannot. We, we cannot afford to allow our differences to divide us in the spirit. I've seen it. I've seen it ruin too many churches. And it cannot happen here if we're to remain effective in our calling. And if the church for each one of us is to be a place where we thrive and grow and learn and mature. There must be unity in the spirit. And that means love, 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 love. And then some more love. And then you can sprinkle some humility and gentleness and patience right on top of that. Because if we lose that, we lose everything. We should remember that before we speak. Before we write that email. Before we make that phone call. Before we talk to someone else about that person that rubs us the wrong way. It's simply not worth, it is not worth losing our unity in order to elevate ourselves in some way. Okay? We must have unity in the spirit. And, and if that's not enough to take in in 16 short verses by Paul, if that's not enough to digest, he goes on to say also in verse 13, there must be unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, for there to be unity in the church in addition to being unified in spirit, we also have to all be on the same page as far as what and who we believe in. We have to believe in the same thing. We have to be unified in faith. So Paul explains how that is achieved again in the preceding verses. It's a pattern in this chapter. He says in verses 11 and 12, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And then he continues in verse 13, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In other words, we have to remain submitted to the Word of God and the leadership of the church as ordained by God, not men, so that we can be built up in our faith and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ so that we will become mature and strong and, yes, unified. And look, I know 
that the word submission in our culture is not a popular word. I know that. This is tough for us. It's tough for Americans because we don't like being told what to do. And so we associate submission with weakness and subjugation. And that flies in the face of our patriotic nature and the strong individualism and desire for freedom that our country was founded on. And I hope you know there's no one here this morning more grateful for this country and the freedoms uh, than I am, that we have, okay? But the fact remains, we're not individual gods in control of our own destiny. We don't have the power within us apart from the one true God to rule the universe or even our little small part of it. We may think we do, and actually that's a form of Gnosticism, which was thriving in sort of the second to the fifth centuries, and, and it's making a comeback in our culture today in some forms. But we're not sovereign. We're not. Only God is. And we are his subjects. He alone is the king. We're members of his kingdom. And so our responsibility is to serve him first, to submit to his voice and to his word. And, and yeah, he speaks and teaches us directly through his Holy Spirit who dwells in every believer. Absolutely. He, he speaks to us as we listen for his voice. He reveals his word to us as we study on our own and meditate on it. Absolutely. But he also guides us and teaches us through those that he has called and appointed and gifted to lead the church. Paul says, he gave. He's talking about God. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the ministry. Okay? The, the leadership of the church is not a clever device that men came up with in order to con control people. Now, we know historically there certainly have been men who have perverted God's design in order to control people, and the result of that is never good. But the fact remains that God created the church, and he alone calls and appoints apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers not to control people, but to equip people, to train them, to teach them, to shepherd them, to lead them by example so that the work of the ministry can be carried out by all the saints all the followers of Christ, not just the church leadership. And so the leadership of the church has a responsibility to lead by example, to teach the word of God properly and to shepherd the congregation with integrity, which is why we don't take people, by the way, who are recent converts and make them elders or pastors in the church, because we all need training and leading and shepherding in our lives so that we can mature and grow and become equipped. And Paul says that is especially true of those who are called and appointed to lead. James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James 3, 1. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, Verse 2, he says, shepherd the flock. And that word shepherd is the Greek word poimino, which is where we get the English word pastor from. So it's the role of the elder, what we call a pastor, but more accurately elder, to pastor or shepherd the flock. And he says, of God that is among you, exercising oversight, which is the Greek word episkopeo, which is the, the verb uh, form of the noun overseer in our language, which is simply another title, for those who serve as elders or those who pastor, shepherd the flock. And then he goes on, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain. Boy, have we gotten that one wrong. But eagerly, 
not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, that's Jesus. He's the senior pastor. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Uh, That sounds good to me. Obviously, there's a great amount of responsibility and accountability for those who teach and shepherd the church. And likewise, for the rest of the church members, there is responsibility and accountability. Peter continues in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. So there's mutual accountability here. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, concerning those who aspire to become overseers in the church, he says he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. 1 Timothy 3, 6. Hebrews 13, 7 through 9 says, Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. And then verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls. As those who have to give an account, that's a, that's a big deal. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you, okay? Clearly, within the church, under the ultimate authority of Jesus Christ, who is the chief shepherd, according to Peter, we are all accountable to one another, and we are all instructed to live in humble submission to one another. And when it comes to having unity in the faith and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we're to be devoted to the teaching of the Word of God, that comes through the leadership of the church. This is exactly what we see in the first iteration of the New Testament church in Acts 2, what I believe to be the purest form of the church that we see there uh, until you get to Revelation. The church in Acts 2, verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Of course, again, that doesn't mean that you can't learn on your own. You can, and you certainly should. You had better (laughs) learn on your own. And the Holy Spirit will reveal His Word to you directly, uh, without a doubt. But that doesn't nullify the fact that there is a gift and a calling on some individuals to teach and lead and shepherd the church. And we're to be submitted as followers of Christ to that teaching and leading and shepherding. And, and I realize who I'm talking to. You're sitting here listening to me talk. right? I'm preaching to the choir. I get that. But I'm just telling you there is quite a movement in our country today away from pastoral leadership in the church. There are house churches, which I, house churches are wonderful. I have no problem with house churches, but there is a movement of house churches that are rejecting the scriptural mandate of leadership, church leadership, and there are people coming together saying, no, we'll just pray and we'll read the word together and we'll sort of figure out on our own what it says. And then after a year, we'll disband and we'll form new ones. And that's happening. And it's, a, it's an unled church. It's very unbiblical, Okay. Paul says the way that we become unified in the faith and the knowledge of Jesus Christ is through the teaching of God's word. And he specifically says through the leadership of the church. And of course, uh, as we're unified in spirit. Okay, as I mentioned before, the importance and implication for the church when it comes to unity, this subject, we really can't be overstated. Our very ability to testify effectively to the gospel of Jesus Christ hangs in the balance of how unified we are as a body of Christ, as the church. 
And in the context of this sermon series, the extent to which the church is a part of your life either drains you, frustrates you, wears you out, or invigorates you, excites you, and energizes you is dependent, at least in part, by the measure and degree of unity that there is within this local body. I realized one day, several years ago, that anytime I was having a conversation with someone about whatever, a friend or an acquaintance, and the subject of fly fishing or motorcycles or hunting came up, my heart rate would pick up a little bit. And I would sit up in my chair, and all of a sudden, I was fully engaged in that conversation because I was passionate about those parts of my life. But when the subject of church would come up in the same conversation, I wouldn't react that way at all. I would uh, immediately begin to think of negatives. I would think about problems and frustrations that I associated with the church. You know, it's really kind of old-fashioned. I don't know that it's relevant to my life. Church people are judgmental. Some of them are just grouchy. Selfish. It's, you know, it's kind of boring to sit in church sometimes. And I would think, I just don't get a lot out of church. And I realized finally that there was something wrong. I, I shouldn't be more excited about fishing than I was about the body of Christ. And I really wanted to be able to honestly feel more excited about the conversation when someone brought up church as I did when they brought up other things. And so my journey began. And it started with that statement. I just don't get a lot out of it. And I discovered that the problem started right there. The problem started with me, with my attitude about the church because I associated the value of church in my life directly with what I could get out of it. And as soon as I started asking a different question, how can I give my life for the church? Everything began to change. Everything began to change. God changed my heart. My life quickly followed. And the result of that has been profound. Church for me today equals a lot of work, a lot of labor, long hours, a lot of giving, a lot of sacrifice, a lack of sleep, A lot of things that are difficult. And every night, I literally cannot wait for the next day to start because the church absolutely excites me. It energizes me. I feel invigorated because God has allowed me to serve the church. And I get to watch lives being changed and relationships being strengthened and hearts being healed and souls being saved. And it all changed when I allowed my heart to be unified with God's heart for the church. That's the key, guys. That's the key for us. John says it so well. 1 John 3.16, he says, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for others. For the brothers, he says. That's all of us in the church. That's the key to church becoming for each of us what it was intended to be. Something wonderful. Exciting, refreshing, energizing. That's, that's how we should all be experiencing church. And the key to that is the unification of our hearts to Christ and to each other in unity. Let's pray.